just bow our heads and bow our hearts before the Lord together. God, those words echo in my heart even now that in Christ alone my hope is found. God, in no other place, not in prestige, not in money, not in a role somewhere, not in a job, not even in family or those things that you've given us, not, not, not the gifts that you have given, but the giver and only the giver. That's where our hope is found, in Christ alone. God, as we've prepared our hearts, as we've sung praises to you, as we've asked that you would be our focus, be our vision, God, as we've sung that, that our hope is found only in you, God, we've prepared our hearts to hear from your word, and now in this moment we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would speak. God, that there would be nothing of me that comes across, and, and anything of me that might come across, God, would you just hit that delete button so that only uh, what is heard in this place today is your voice and your voice alone. We open our hearts to you now. We open our minds to you now. We invite you to speak in and through your word to those in this place who know you and those who have never met you before. Oh, God, would you speak? And in Christ's name alone, the people of God together say, Amen. Would you be seated? Would you all thank uh, Curtis for leading us this morning? I want to tell you how big a deal it is that, that Curtis uh, came to, to lead here at Baby Glen this morning. He's part of a, of a church plant called Upper Room uh, Church uh, over on the, what, where's that, east? West is, West Easter, Northeasterly. I'm just, I'm naming uh, Kardashian kids at this point, right? Um, Northwest, I think, right? Vaughn. Vaughn, Markham, Ontario. Ontario area. It's in Ontario. <laughs> the, the senior pastor over there is a guy named VJ Christian, a, a, a good buddy of mine. And Curtis actually had a baby a week ago. Um, so, so what that means is that he's an outstanding worship leader and a horrible dad is what that means because he is here with us this morning. So glad to have him there. Uh, you guys know Jeff playing piano over there. Jeff, um, it's hard for me to believe that a firefighter can play the piano that well um, with that amount of delicacy. So thanks for serving us and for putting out fires when they happen. And then um, this... This young lady over here, that's my wife, Amy. I don't know if you guys knew that. So it's just, it's great to have, yeah. <clears throat> and so I hope that even in our response uh, to their leadership this morning, what you hear is um, we are grateful to you for giving uh, of yourselves and your time and energy and effort and your spiritual gifts to the body. But you know what? The same thing goes for people who are serving in our children's ministry. The same thing goes for those folks who shook your hand on the way in today. The same thing goes for those ushers that came down the aisle. The same thing goes for our ESL team and children's ministry workers and folks who lead Alpha and Sunday school class leaders and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. We all bring, our, now I'm preaching on the body of Christ. This is great. I'm, I'm totally derailed from the series. 
we are just grateful uh, for, for you guys this morning, but also for each of us that, that, that bring a gift to share, that bring a dish to share, because this is a potluck, and so thanks, thanks for doing that this morning. We, we have a great summer ahead of us here. Um, Curtis will be back with us a few times this summer. Um, uh, Melissa Davis, our very own Melissa Davis, is going to be leading next week. Uh, Dr. Arnold will be back on the organ. The whole worship team will be back next week. Uh, Melissa Davis, you might know her because she conducts our gospel choir. Melissa has one of those fancy Doctor of Music degrees. Um, I do not have a Doctor of Music degree. I can't even read music. It's just dots on a page. And so you'll want to be here next week. Melissa will do a great job doing that. Brad Guldemont is going to be here with us this summer. Brad's a Covenant Award winner, if you know what that is. And he's going to be leading worship. So we're excited for what what's going on this summer uh, during kind of a transition time in our worship and arts ministry. Uh, we also have Bayview Kids Summer Experience. Kevin talked about that. We have these community events, summer nights at Bayview Glen. Kevin talked about that. And on Sunday mornings, here's what we're doing this summer, June, July, and August, we are launching into a series today called A King and a Kingdom, Lessons from the Life of David. We'll be spending most of our time in the books of First and Second Samuel. They're in the Old Testament. And, and I want you to know but before, that before we even get into this this summer, that those two books, First and Second Samuel, are a bit risque. They really are. First and Second Samuel are PG-13 at the very best, and if they had pictures, they would be rated R, I promise. They include stories of murder, incest, rape, adultery, gory battles, betrayal, and suicide. In First and Second Samuel, a guy even gets his hair caught in a tree as he's riding his horse, gets his hair caught in the tree. The horse rides out from under him, and he hangs there until his enemy kills him. I'm not kidding. That actually happens in First and Second Samuel. If the Bible were cable television, you would have a parental lock on First and Second Samuel. They are, they are a, it's a risque book. It's, it's, a, it's a very detailed uh, couple of books. But the life of David that, 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 that the Scripture tackles in First and Second Samuel and elsewhere also includes stories of conquering overwhelming enemies. It talks about friendship that few can describe. It talks about immeasurable love, peace in the midst of struggle, reconciling broken relationships, and God bringing victory when no one thought he could. We studied the books of First and Second Samuel and studied the life of David for a couple of reasons. And I wanted to kind of set us up today by, by reminding us of what those reasons are, why we studied the life of David. So you can look for this as we read and study together this summer. First and foremost, we study the life of David so we can see ourselves in the context of God's redemptive history. If you're taking notes this morning, jot this down. We study the life of David. We study First and Second Samuel so that we can see ourselves within the context of God's redemptive history. Redemptive history is a $2 word that theologians use. You don't need to copy down this definition, but here's, here's what redemptive history is. It's God's master plan to restore his creation that he is unfolding within the context of human history. It's God's master plan for redemption, of, or restoring his creation, and he's unfolding that plan within the context of human history. And David is a key character in God's plan for redemption. 
You, you know, as believers, especially in the modern day and age, we have this unfortunate tendency to kind of remove ourselves a little bit from God's master plan of redemption. And so we boil the Christian life down to a few spiritual platitudes. You know, love your neighbor as yourself, the truth, truth will set you free, and those are great. Those are great. I absolutely love those verses. Or we're kind of living this life of Christ in the here and now, but we don't open our minds and consider that God is unfolding a master plan for redemption, and he has been doing so since the very beginning of time. And the story of David helps us see ourselves as a part of God's master plan throughout the ages. We study the life of David so that we can see ourselves in the context of God's redemptive history. Number two, we study the life of David because David's life provides an example. David's life provides an example. For some of you who might already know a little bit about David, you notice that there's an adjective missing in the front of example. That adjective is good. Because it's not always a good example, is it? Sometimes it's a bad example. Sometimes it's a good example, sometimes not so much. David is far from perfect. He does some things really well, and he makes some really poor decisions. And the scripture gives us a very detailed, almost exhaustive record of all of those decisions. The Bible gives us more information about David than nearly any other biblical character. In fact, in terms of where we see David and where David stops, we actually have more information about his life in, in terms of the timeline than we have about the life of Christ. And we see his life through all kinds of different lenses. Nineteen Old Testament books talk about David. Nine New Testament books talk about David. Books like First and Second Samuel are kind of his biography a little bit, a little bit of the history of who David is. But like the Psalms are kind of like his diary. So, so we know what happened to David and the choices he made, but we also know how he felt in the midst of those choices. David teaches us lessons, both good and bad, about parenthood, leadership, honoring and submitting to authority, and finding hope in all things. David teaches us how to be a great friend, how to be a great son or daughter, and how to leave a lasting legacy, how to avoid temptation, and how to respond when you fall into it. David teaches us how to respond to God's rebuke, how to praise God for his loving kindness, how to find God when you sin, how to enjoy God's forgiveness, how to experience God's joy in the midst of struggle, and how to trust him no matter what. David provides an example. And you know what? There's a little bit of David in all of us. A little bit of David in all of us. If you have good friends, if you have dysfunctional family members, if you, some of you, <laughs> you're like, Okay, I'm ready for this now. I said dysfunctional family, and you're all about it. A horrible boss, if you have issues with lust, if you have a spouse you don't always get along with, don't nudge your spouse. If you have a desire to protect yourself when you mess up, if you struggle with loneliness, if you have people in your life that you are leading or managing in business, in family, or elsewhere, especially if you struggle with discovering how to do those things well and you've made mistakes in the process, you will find a friend in David. You'll find a kindred spirit in David. He's an example. Number three, because David is a man after God's own heart. That's why we study the life of David. He's not perfect, but in the book of Acts, Luke confirms that David was a man after God's own heart. And in our passage today, the Bible's very first mention of David, it doesn't even mention his name. 
all it says is that he's a man after God's own heart. And we'll conclude our time today with the idea that David was a man after God's own heart, and we're going to discover exactly what that means this summer. We're going to unpack it together this summer. But before we get to David, the second king in Israel, we've got to talk about Saul, the first king in Israel. So today, that's where we're going to spend our time, talking about the context into which David enters onto the scene of God's redemptive history. And to conclude our message today, we'll get a very quick glimpse of David himself. Here's the story. This is a very abridged version. You can read all about it in the Bible if you want to. God decided to start a family here on this earth, and he chose a man named Abraham as the means to make that happen. God promised Abraham a son, and even in very old age, older than anyone here, Abraham had a son, and that son's name was Isaac. Isaac had a son, and that son's name was Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons each became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those tribes would become a nation, and the nation of Israel was an extension of God's character here on planet Earth. Israel was supposed to prove his promises, carry out his justice, tell of his glory, and declare his salvation to all he, who would hear. They were an extension. Those 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, were an extension of God's character. Number two, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. This means that God was their king. But God appointed earthly judges and prophets that would carry out, carry out his decrees. Kind of like this microphone and this speaker system projects my voice. The judges and the prophets were kind of the microphone and speaker system for God in the nation of Israel and the Old Testament. They were there to project his voice. But God was still king. One of those judges... One of those prophets was a man named Samuel, and Samuel was starting to get old, getting a little long in the tooth. His sons, both of them were absolute wrecks, and the nation of Israel started to think, what's going to happen when Samuel dies? And that's where the nation of Israel makes a really, really bad choice. If you've got your Bible, pick it up. 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. The scripture's up here on the screen. You can read along with us. There's also a Bible in that seat back in front of you. You can use that. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to learn a little bit about how Saul came to the throne in Israel. The first king in Israel, Saul, as we kind of set the context for the second king in Israel, a man named David. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. The scripture says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. It never gets better after that, does it? If that's how you start a sentence, it's just going downhill. Let's keep reading. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. Here's what the scripture is saying. It's saying God was king in Israel. Israel decided he wasn't doing a great job anymore, so they deposed him in favor of a human king. This is a bad idea. In verse 9, God tells Samuel that he should solemnly warn Israel that this is a bad idea, which Samuel does. But the nation of Israel refused to heed the warning and demanded a king, and God said, just give them what they want. They're rejecting me, and they're rejecting you. Now, the action that the nation of Israel took was not smart. If God is your king, you don't depose him. You don't oust him in favor of a human king. That's a a severely career-limiting choice. That's a bad decision on the part of the nation of Israel. But, but, but here's what I really want us to kind of camp out on. Look at the motivation for the action, because that's even more ridiculous. Why they chose to do this. And it provides the substance for one of our, our first bottom, two of, of, of uh, one of two bottom line truths this morning. Pick up the reason that Israel deposed God there in verse 19. Read verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, here we go, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Check out what's going on here. Look at the motivation for the mistake. The nation of Israel has ousted God as their king because they compared themselves to other nations around them. They compared themselves to other nations around them. This does not turn out good for the nation of Israel. And it brings us to our very first bottom line truth this morning, and it's this. There are only losers when we play the comparison game. There are only losers when we play the comparison game. If you're jotting down notes, jot this down. You can write down, if you don't like the word loser, that's fine. Nobody wins in the comparison game. 100% of the time, 100% of the folks lose when we compare ourselves to one another in families, in business, and as individuals. I don't care if it's Old Testament Israel. I don't care if it's Toronto in 2014. When we compare ourselves to those around us and then allow those comparisons to drive our decisions, nobody wins. In Israel's case, they compared themselves to other nations and said, they've got a human king, we want a human king because that seems better to us, so we're going to oust God, we're going to rip him down from his throne. In our lives, the very same thing holds true. When we compare ourselves to others, all heck breaks loose in our lives. We start adopting mentalities that God never intended, and eventually we kick him off the throne. And it begins with the comparison game. Let's look at three mentalities that, that, kind of, that kind of come from the comparison game. When we compare ourselves to others, just like the nation of Israel did, let's take a look at three mentalities. For, for the nation of Israel, this is the mentality they adopted. It's called the grass is always greener mentality. The grass is greener mentality. Th- this is how this works. We want a king like that nation because the grass is greener over there. Or I want a car like that guy because the grass is greener over there. I want a spouse like that person 
because the grass is greener over there. I want that job or that boss or that boat or that cottage because the grass is greener over there. You know you're a grass is greener person if you've always got something cooking. If you've always got a new business opportunity or promotion you're after or a boat you're going to buy, etc., etc., you may be a grass is greener mentality type of person, and it begins with the comparison game. These are all grass metaphors this morning. So number two mentality is the my grass stinks mentality. My grass stinks. I compare myself to somebody else, and I come to the conclusion in my own life, I don't like my lawn. This stinks. It's also called the woe is me mentality. I have nothing, nobody, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to go eat a worm. You know you're this person if you feel like you deserve stuff. It's called entitlement. The seed is comparison, the plant is entitlement, and the fruit is eventually ousting God from his throne and putting something else up there in its place. How about the grass should grow faster mentality? Or my grass should grow faster mentality. It's also known as the fast food life mentality or the I want it now mentality. Yeah, okay, I get God's plan, but I'm going to take the reins from him and drive it faster. That's still ousting God from his throne when you take control of the pace. Even if you haven't taken control of the outcome, when you've taken control of the pace and you say, I want to get there faster. And it starts with the comparison game. You know you're this person if you never see anything through. If you always bail out just a little bit early on stuff, you may be, my grass should grow faster mentality. You may be caught in the middle of that. And each of these mentalities lead us to discontentment with where God has us or discontentment with the pace he's working at. And eventually, just like the nation of Israel, these mentalities will cause us to rip God down from his throne and replace him with whatever we wanted in the first place. For Israel, it was a new king. For us, it could be a new car, a new spouse, whatever. And it all starts with a harmless little game called comparison. Here's the bottom line. The comparison game always ends in an abandonment of God's will for our lives always it may take some time for you it may happen fast for you but when we begin to compare ourselves to other people individuals families or businesses around us that will lead to an abandonment of god's will for your life it did for the nation of israel and it will for you and i too we say things like the grass is greener over there or my grass stinks anyway or i'm going to abandon this now for the sake of that and we walk away uh, from god's will for our lives just like israel did and the comparison game's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting. That's why Instagram and Twitter and Facebook like dominate the world now. Because we just we search through on our phones or on the computer or whatever and just comparing ourselves with that vacation or that person's abs or whatever it is, you know? The comparison game. You can get caught in it really easily. It's been, it's been difficult for me to stay out of this comparison game for the last year or two. I'll tell you why. Because typically in the United States, um, especially the way that Amy and I have kind of done our adoption process, typically it takes between three and six months. Um, we're working on the end of year two here in the adoption process. My brother uh, just adopted a baby a couple of weeks ago. From start to end, 
from the day they filled out their first piece of paperwork to the day they took a baby home, my brother's adoption process, weeks. Seven weeks. Some of you who are adopted or who have adopted, I just, I just heard verbally from you, oh, gosh, oh, seven weeks, yeah. You know how easy it is to compare? Oh, God, the grass is greener over there. I don't, this two-year thing, seven weeks? And I compare myself to somebody else. And if I would have taken the reins and tried to speed it up, I would have abandoned God's will for our life. Interesting, right? Look, it's a fight. I know it's a struggle. I know because I've been through it and I'm going through it right now. What about you? Where are you comparing yourself to others? Where are you tempted to abandon God's will for your life, to disregard his commandments, to nudge him off the throne? Is it in your marriage? I'm going to let that sit with some of you because you're playing the comparison game in your marriage right now. My spouse is not quite as good as that spouse. I'd like to speed up this process and blah, blah, blah. And you're playing the comparison game in your marriage. And you know what's going to result in? It's going to result in ripping God down from his throne and replacing him with something that shouldn't be there just like it did for Israel. How about material things? Comparing yourself to others in terms of how much stuff you've got? How about, how about are you comparing yourself in terms of the role that you play in the body? I wish I had skills like that person did. I wish I was more hospitable, or I wish I could teach, or I wish I could do the music thing. You compare yourself to somebody else. But the Word of God says the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. We don't compare ourselves to one another in the body. How about with your natural gifts? I wish I was more outgoing like so-and-so is. Are you comparing yourself? The comparison game always leads to ripping God from his throne. I don't know where you struggle, but God does. Take a cue from Israel. The comparison game leads nowhere. There are only losers in the comparison game. And it always ends in an abandonment of God's will for your life. So here's what happens. God gives Israel what they want. He warns them. You can read Samuel's warning in 1 in Samuel chapter 13. Yep, end of 13. You can read his warning. And he says, look, this is a bad idea. Bad stuff is going to happen, but they say, nope, we want a king because we've compared ourselves to other nations around us, and Saul comes to power in Israel. Based on Samuel's solemn warning, how do you think this turns out for the nation of Israel? Good or bad? Everybody say it on three. You didn't even wait for three, did you? What am I going to do with y'all? can't even follow instructions. One, two, three. There you go. It ends up bad, but I don't even know where I'm at now. <laughs> it ends up bad for the nation of Israel. Saul does okay for a while. He rallies some good men around him. He defeats the Ammonites, but, but it doesn't end up that way. It eventually goes bad. And isn't that how it goes when we abandon God's will for our life? It seems okay at first, Sin numbs the pain, or it's really fun, but eventually, when God gets ripped off the throne, things go bad. It did for Israel, and it does for us. 
When Samuel first anointed Saul as king, he gave him some very specific instructions. Turn a page or two to your left and look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. For, oh, sorry, 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel 10. And we're going to be in verse 8. This is the instructions that Samuel gives to Saul when he first anoints him as king. Verse 8. Samuel says, Then go down before me to Gilgal. He sends Saul. And he says, And behold, I am coming down to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So here's the deal with Saul. He's told by God's prophet to hang out and wait seven days until I show up. I'll offer the burnt offerings and peace offerings, and then you go off into battle, and God will show you favor. Now flip over a page or two to chapter 13, and we're going to read the conclusion of this story. Because Saul starts well. He does a good job at the outset. But he abandons God's instructions through his prophet. Look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. It says, He, that Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Listen, according to God's laws in Leviticus, burnt offerings were offered once in the morning and once in the evening. Saul would have known this. They were also to be offered by one specific person. And in this case, it was Samuel, God's prophet, God's judge. Saul would have known this. So when he offers this sacrifice in, disobedient to, in disobedience to God in chapter 13, it would have been in the morning because that's when the first burnt offering was, was lifted or was sacrificed in the day, in the morning. In other words, Saul didn't give Samuel the full day to show up. Do you see it? Saul didn't give Samuel the full day to show up. And Samuel did show up in the time God had appointed, by the way. He just didn't show up soon enough for Saul. So Saul panicked, and he took matters into his own hands. He offered the sacrifice he shouldn't have. He was supposed to wait for Samuel. Pick up the text in verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, not true, by the way, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I took the reins. I did what seemed best to me. So Samuel shows up on the scene right after Saul takes matters into his own hands. His question, it's supposed to be a rebuke. He says, what have you done? In other words, what gives Saul? And he rebukes him. And Saul reluctantly admits what he's done. But listen, just like we did with the nation of Israel, it's not just the action, it's the motivation for the action that's very interesting here. Look at, look at Saul's response to Samuel. When Samuel says, what gives, Saul's response in verse 11 is this. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, Saul was afraid. 
People were scattering. The Philistines had gathered together. Samuel wasn't there in the time that Saul thought he ought to be there. And he was afraid of man and of circumstances. He certainly did not trust God. Two chapters earlier, the Bible tells us that Saul was very successful in battle and he was confident going in. You know why? Because he feared the Lord. It says that the terror of the Lord fell upon Saul and he went into battle confident because he feared the Lord. There is no fear of the Lord here. There's fear of man. And Saul panics and that panic led to a horrible choice. But look closer at what Saul says to Samuel once Samuel calls him out, look at his reasons. This is where I want to just kind of take us this morning as we, as we conclude here. This is where this text can be very instructive for us. Saul begins by saying, look, I had to do it. I had to offer the sacrifice. My men were bailing out on me. But remember, two chapters before, Saul acted in faith on, in faith on God's promises and courageously led his men into battle. He could have done the same here, but he doesn't. And when Samuel confronts him, Saul blames his men. They all ran. Look what he says, number two. Then he says to Samuel, you didn't show up in the days appointed. Samuel's thinking, this is morning of day seven, dude. I'm here. I did show up in the days appointed. I showed up in time. But Saul blames Samuel. Do you hear it? You didn't show up. He blames his men. He blames Samuel. And then he blames the circumstances. He says, oh, the Philistines were already ready and we weren't ready. So I had to do it. I forced myself. Saul is throwing anyone and everyone under the bus. He throws Samuel under the bus. He throws his men under the bus. He throws the circumstances under the bus. He takes zero responsibility for his actions. He's playing the blame game here. And guess what? Just like the comparison game, there are only losers in the blame game. There are only losers in the blame game. And we do the same thing these days when we give in to temptation, don't we? We play the blame game. We say things like, I don't have enough time to read my Bible and pray. Blaming circumstances. I got an email with a link in it, but I didn't know it was going to lead me to that. I'll be generous once I have more resources and I'm comfortable. It's not me that's pulling away from my family. It's this darn job and my horrendous boss. I couldn't help but lash out. All she does is nag. Well, sure, I gossiped, but you don't understand what she did. Blame, blame, blame. You want to know how to beat the blame game? You do what Saul didn't do. We take, it, we take a cue from Saul and say, what's missing here? How do I beat the blame game? How do I get out of the blame game, better said, because there's only losers in the blame game. You do what Saul did not do. And what did Saul fail to do? He failed to take responsibility for his actions. So in order to beat the blame game, you take responsibility for your actions. Take responsibility for your actions. I think it's important to kind of, kind of distinguish here between blame and responsibility. I'm going to read this statement twice so we understand the difference between blame and responsibility. Here we go. Responsibility is the ability to discern and attribute individual and collective results. Blame is about who's going to pay the price for problems. 
Do you hear it? Let me say it again. Responsibility is the ability to discern and attribute individual and collective results. Blame is about who's going to pay the price for problems. And that's who Saul is looking, that's what Saul is looking to do. He's looking to make someone pay the price for problems. When I take responsibility for my actions or when I encourage others to do the same, I'm not looking for someone to place blame on and make someone pay the price. So I'm out of the blame game and I'm into accountability. I'm into responsibility. And that's where the blame game stops when we take responsibility and accountability for our own actions. No more this, that, the other thing, looking to throw people under the bus, make someone pay the price for problems. We take responsibility for our own actions. Leaders, business leaders, take a cue from Saul. Create this kind of culture in your workplace. Create this kind of culture in your company, in your work environment. Men and women of God, family leaders, dads and moms, create this kind of culture in your home where we're not blaming each other and looking to throw somebody under the bus, but we're taking accountability and we're responsible for our own actions. I read a story of a man this week who, who, was, uh, who was working in a computer company and he had written code for software for three weeks and he failed to back up the code on a hard drive. And the client he was working for failed to back up the code on a hard drive. You know where this is going. He accidentally hit delete, and the code went away. Three weeks of work, a whole lot of money and time. He called his manager, and he said, Hey, I accidentally hit the delete button, so my resignation will be on your desk tomorrow morning. I'm out. And his manager said, Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Stop. Let's rewind here. And he says to the man, Okay, um, you hit the delete button. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah. How long do you think it would take you? Now that you've written the code over three weeks, how long do you think it would take you to replace it? The man says, I don't know, three or four days maybe. And he says, okay, here's the deal. You get started working on that code, but before you do that, call the client and say, I'm sorry, I messed up. I take responsibility for my actions and we're going to fix it. And we won't charge you for the extra time. Within 24 hours, with pulling an all-nighter and all kinds of Red Bull, the man had replaced all the code from three weeks. So he called his manager and he said, hey, I think we did it. I think we're done with the code. And the manager said, great, that sounds awesome. Let's just keep moving forward. And he says, let me ask you something. Why didn't you fire me? He said, because here's the deal. I'm not looking to place blame on somebody. I'm looking to help people take responsibility and be accountable for their own actions. You were responsible. You were accountable. Here's my only request. Make better mistakes next time. That's it. This is the kind of environment that we need to be creating in our homes. This is the kind of environment we need to be creating in our businesses. We're not shoving people under the bus. We're just asking people to take responsibility like Saul did not do. Here's how you take responsibility for your actions. I'll just give you a tip. You say something like this. My actions were wrong. I alone am responsible for my actions and their consequences. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? We're going to see this in David's life when he makes mistakes. We do not see it in Saul's. Number two, how to beat the blame game. We confess to God and confess to others. We confess to God and confess to others. How does confession beat the blame game? Listen close. Those who confess to God 
and enjoy God's forgiveness, realize that Jesus has already accepted all of the blame. There's no blame left to give out. That's, that's key. That's absolutely key. Those who come to God in confession and lay their souls bare before him, those who obey the word of the Lord in James and they confess to others, those who have no secrets in their life, not that they tell one person all things, but they have a few close people in their life that they've confessed to and there's nothing that they're withholding from God or from others. They know that Jesus has already accepted all the blame. So even if I wanted to give out blame, there isn't any left. When we confess to the Lord and enjoy His forgiveness, we're set free from blame, having to blame others or even blaming ourselves because He's taken it all. This pair, taking responsibility for your actions and confessing sin is absolutely life-changing. It's life-changing. Confession lets Jesus take the blame. Taking responsibility for our own actions means we don't walk all over His grace. No more blame game and an encounter with God that moves us forward in our walk with him. We look at Saul and we say, yikes, I don't want to throw people under the bus like that. How do I fix it? Take responsibility and confess. Let's conclude with the results of Saul's actions. The results of Saul's actions. Verse 13, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13. Here are the consequences for Saul's bad decision. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. But the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Did you catch it? A man after God's own heart. You know, I would submit to you that this is still true today, that God is seeking, God has sought out and is still seeking out men and women after his own heart. You know, John 4 says that God is actually seeking worshipers, actively seeking worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Those who fear him, those who learn to walk with him, those who worship him. And for our text today, he's seeking out those who aren't caught up in the comparison game, who aren't caught up in the blame game, who aren't driven by comparisons and who take responsibility for actions, who confess and take responsibility for consequences. This is who God is seeking after. Here in 1 Samuel 13, that man after God's own heart is David. And that's where we pick up our story next week. Let's pray together. God, would you teach us by your grace, by your mercy, to be men and women who don't compare ourselves and let those comparisons drive our decisions like the nation of Israel did. We, we read it in the scripture and we know it turned out bad for them. We know it will turn out bad for us. But we don't want to be like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and goes away and, and, and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
We want to be men and women who look into your word, who behold and understand something like we have today and then put it into practice. And in this case, we want to walk away from that comparison game. God, we want to walk away from the blame game too, knowing that you, Jesus, have taken all of the blame. You've taken all of the shame. You have paid the price. There's no price left to pay. But we do want to be responsible, God, and accountable for our actions and for their consequences. Teach us how to make a distinction between those two things. God, let us learn from the life of Saul, this, this bad example that we read about in your scripture, and help us apply these truths, these principles this week. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. As we conclude this morning, our ushers are going to come forward to receive a benevolent offering. Last month, our benevolent offering went to kind of help a startup church called Moabot Church that uh, was finishing off their time at our campus at the end of June and moving to another site. I want you to know a couple weeks ago, I got a really nice handwritten note from Pastor Sam of the Moabot Church, and I wanted to pass it on to you. He just is so grateful for the way that you gave generously to help Moabot cover the cost in their first two months in, in an independent facility. So we're excited for those guys and wanted to pass along my own thank you, but also a thank you on behalf of Pastor Sam for giving generously. Today our benevolent offering kind of goes to where it normally goes to, which is um, to help people in our community that have needs. I've actually had the opportunity to, to be, uh, walk alongside Peter Kober, who kind of administers this for us, and seen some people get helped in some really great ways these last couple of weeks, and I have an opportunity to extend a cup of cold water and extend a hand of grace uh, to someone in need. So I invite you to give generously uh, to the benevolent offering as we conclude today. Let's pray uh, one more time as we receive these tithes and offerings. God, this money is yours to begin with. It's, it's just a great reminder, God. It's not how, how much of our money are we going to give to you, but how much of your money are we going to keep. And so, God, we want to be generous at this time. Uh, God, we ask that these humble, uh, temporary offerings of, of, of resources, God, would teach us to be content and grateful uh, with what you've given us, and content with and grateful for what you've given us. And God, also teach us to walk closely with you as we worship you in giving. Take these humble resources, God, and do something eternal with them. In the name of Christ, God's people said, amen.